brought to you from Melbourne, Australia. This is the Badminton Podcast, a community for badminton players by badminton players, where we talk badminton, celebrate local heroes, interview players from all walks of life, and push you to grow as a player and a person. Introducing your hosts, Jeff and Henry. Good morning, good afternoon, or good evening, wherever you are. We're really excited to bring you another episode of the Badminton Podcast. So thanks so much for tuning in. The podcast is proudly brought to you by Volantware. And my name's Jeff. And with me is my co-host, Henry. We are both the co-founders of Volantware. And we're really here to bring the love of badminton all over the world and to help celebrate it, to make it a more popular, mainstream and recognized sport because we really don't think that it gets the recognition and the love that we all expect it to. So one of our visions in Volantware and the Badminton Podcast is to bring that love, but also to help badminton players feel confident and look great and stylish everywhere they go. So take yourself back to a time where you had some badminton clothes on, the traditional stuff that's really brightly colored and patterned, and you wanted to go out for lunch or grab a meal with your friends afterwards. If you're walking down the street, it's not that comfortable wearing something so bright and unsightly. So that's why we exist. That's why Volantware started to bring out some excellent badminton apparel that's really good on the court, but also looks good and natural off the court so you can wear it anywhere. So make sure you do check us out and shop at www.volantware.com. On the website, there's heaps of free resources, reviews, etc. as well that can help you with your game. We've also got our social media, so you can follow us there. The handle is at Volantware, V-O-L-A-N-T-W-E-A-R. Now, we're really pumped to be bringing you yet another episode of the podcast. And thank you so much for everyone that's listened and has supported us. But before we actually get started into the episode, I just wanted to ask for a bit of support. Now, there have been some people who have really helped us out and they've pledged a few dollars each month that really helps to keep our episodes up to date and of high quality. And these people have done that through our Patreon account. So we'd love to shout out to our latest all access Patreons, Yves Lacroix and our guest on this episode, Derek Ng, because they have basically contributed and helped us on our podcasting journey. And just a quick note for all the other people who have supported us through Patreon, we really love that you've been able to do so and really do appreciate it. So if you want to be a part of it and if you want to support us to keep the regular episodes coming out, then please visit patreon.com slash the badminton podcast and we'll put the link in the description below so you can pledge some support for us. So let's get into the episode now. Henry is going to take us through the awesome achievements and the introduction of our guest today. Thanks, Jeff. So, as Jeff mentioned, Derek Ng or Ng is our guest for today. Now, when asked to provide us with an introduction, this double specialist gave us a list of 48 key international achievements, 34 national achievements as a player, and 12 coaching achievements. So, we'd be here for a while if I went through the entire list, and I'm sure there's plenty of achievements that aren't on there as well. But to say the least, while still giving the audience a good idea of his level of play, Derek is the seven-time national champion and four-time Pan American champion as well. Now, he's currently the head coach of Bellevue Badminton Club, which is the top club in the Pacific Northwest in the United States with around 400 students. But this was pre-COVID, so I think Derek will have to provide us a more accurate number of what things are like now when we talk to him shortly. So he's currently training some of the top national junior athletes, including the recipient of the first ever foundation scholarship, William Hu, who we recently had on our podcast with Esther Shee and Rajiv Rai. If you want to check out that episode, the link will be in the description below as well. So thanks so much for coming onto the podcast, Derek. Thank you for having me. Derek, you have a really cool story. We've spoken to you a couple of times now, and I think it's really important for listeners to get a bit of insight into just who you are as a badminton player and how you got to where you are now. So if you wouldn't mind giving us a bit of a a recap, that would be great. Okay. I started badminton with my older brother when I was around four years old. And I pretty much just started with my parents as something to do for fun. That was non-contact sport like any other kind of Asian household. So kind of started in the community centers. And then luckily we had a kind of a private badminton club near where we lived. So we joined that and then 
kind of started just playing a lot for fun after school. And I never really got that good. I was, my, my brother was also like, he was the kind of the star of the show. And I was always kind of known as Toby's brother growing up in badminton. But it wasn't until I was 18 years old where I started, I won my first junior nationals in Canada. And from there, I kind of just started to develop more passion for badminton. Throughout competing under 23 nationals in Canada, I became a lot better and I started to win those. It just kind of, the opportunity presented itself to me and I just kind of went with it and took it and then kind of changed my whole life. And now like my whole life is, has been badminton. So that's pretty much a quick summary of kind of how I started. Yeah, sure. And what did you find was the most important part for you when you were trying to kind of get to that next level? So when you started, like you said, in the under 23s, that's when you started to start winning and getting a lot more competitive. Was there anything in particular that you decided for yourself or was there a particular motivation or you watched someone play? Like where did the drive come from to keep wanting to get better? Uh, hmm. That would be a, I wouldn't say a funny story, but one of the things that really pops into my mind right now would be probably from a breakup. When I won my under 19 nationals, I was actually dating my mixed partner. And when we broke up, it was something that, of course, you know, everyone kind of goes through that heartbreak, but it was just putting that energy and training badminton to get my mind off it. That is probably one of the reasons why I actually got really good at badminton. Wow. Yeah. <laughs> so how long did that spur you on for? Uh, maybe like a year. But then after a year, like I, I really started to see results and I just really wanted to get better. And it, it was just kind of sick of losing and wanted to have something that I could stand for as a person. You know, after high school, going into like U23 nationals, like I was working as an apprentice electrician at the time and not, not too sure about my future. But then one thing that I really did like and I saw that I was doing or excelling at, not just in my local city, but nationally was badminton. So I thought I would stick with it and see what will happen if I really tried my best at it. Yeah. And speaking of your apprenticeship now, we know having spoken to you previously about how you went through some really difficult times in order to play badminton. And as, as badminton players and, and fans all know that badminton is not the most lucrative sporting career choice, especially in Western countries. But we know that your financial struggles were quite significant. Can you take us through that journey? Did it start around that time when you started to see some significant results? Uh, yeah, I would say so. I had a career as an apprentice electrician. I was almost done to get my certificate to become a certified electrician. And it was through then, like I was still competing internationally as in like locally internationally, like I was playing the Canadian International, US Open, Canada Open. And I was still working full time at the time when my doubles partner and I qualified for the 2009 world championships in india where i believe we were like the last doubles team to qualify and i didn't even know i had a world ranking and then like to make things worse like we had to play leong day and jung jai sung first <laughs> oh, round <my> on <laughs> tv court so there was a recording of that online somewhere but then i think the site kind of got deleted but oh it was nerve-wracking to be not only have I never like trained professionally, but to be playing idols that I have been watching. And I still remember the last shot of the game where they like lifted it. And I've never played in a stadium with draft before. And I just went for this big smash and I completely whiffed it and shanked it like way off oh. into like, yeah, just way <laughs> off the court. And yeah, as embarrassing as that, that moment was that was pretty much what kind of launched my international career. <laughs> so that was 2009 world championship. Yeah. Yeah. 2009. And then after the 2009 world championships, I was still working because at that time it was right before the 2010 winter Olympics in Vancouver, where I'm from. So I was actually doing a lot of commercial projects as an electrician because it was just so much to do before just to get ready for the Olympics. Now, Having the Olympics 
even though it's the Winter Olympics, you know, in the city that I grew up with uh, or grew up in and kind of just living the Olympics, like right in your city, that really did have a big inspiration on me. And it was right after the 2010 Olympics ended, where where I was training, we were just about to start full-time training because we did have a pretty good group, like my brother and my doubles partner, Adrian, to see if we wanted to train full-time. But I do believe like my brother was about to go to Calgary to train with Kim Dong-moon. But then anyways, it was, it was the Olympics that pretty much inspired me to quit my job as an electrician and just dive right into training full-time badminton and then to compete internationally full-time. When I did that, I did hear a little bit from my coaches that, you know, this isn't going to be expensive and like you will have to travel a lot, pay for everything on your own, which I was kind of naive and just said like, oh yeah, whatever. Like, we'll just, you know, go into it. And as the ball started to roll and I was kind of neck deep in training and competing full time, I was soon in some pretty financial difficulties. So I had to sacrifice a lot and put in a lot of work just to kind of make it through, just to stay alive financially, to compete and train full-time. So for those out there who understand that it could be a lot of money to do that and to compete and train full-time, how much would you say that it would be approximately? Um, like a year in Canadian dollars, it would be maybe to 50 to 55,000 a year. Cause that, you know, that, that was like, you know, how much I was in debt <laughs> when I kind of got through everything, but yeah, it is quite expensive. Like, especially I was lucky at that time I was still living at home, so I didn't have to pay the rent there, but then just traveling, like the plane ticket, hotel, food, training, like shuttles for training, like everything just adds up pretty quick. And then eventually like a little bit past that, I did have to start paying rent cause I had to move out. So that was even more difficult paying for like your own room and board, especially when you're not even living there for half the time. And uh, I was lucky that I was playing double so I can at least share a hotel room or split the cost. Yeah. But paying for all your flights and everything, it does add up really quickly. Yeah. So if you're thinking 55,000 Canadian dollars per year, which is similar to Australian dollars, I understand. Yeah. Which is a lot of money to commit. When you first decided to say, hang up the tools in your apprenticeship or being in work, how much did you have to your name? If you don't mind me asking. And if you were to look back, do you think that you should have built up more or are you happy with the choice that you made? Uh, well, I had like around 15 grand, like to kind of to spend. And, but then like, I had no idea this, this was going to be like, you know, a $50,000 a year, not even a salary. This is how much I have to pay. <laughs> like it's a pay play kind of thing. But then like, I, I had no idea because when I was doing, it, it was pretty sudden that I, I decided to quit my job because at that time, like I was still had car payments. Like I bought a car. I had a motorcycle at the time too. Like I was just kind of living my young life, making, living at home, making money as an electrician. And then suddenly to throw that all away to compete in badminton, I, I guess it was a little bit naive for me to just do that without really thinking it through. But then I did see this as an opportunity that I just cannot throw away. And I just had to, something made me just want to do it. So it was just kind of a, a very quick decision. It was actually, I, I finished the schooling part of my apprenticeship and it was either go back to work or start training full-time. And I was like, I'm just going to start training full-time. Yeah. So I guess if we recap, you made the decision you ended up with about 15 grand in your account, Canadian dollars. And basically your outgoings were fifty to $55,000 a year just, just to play, right? And that's, I guess, for a lot of people that could be their annual salary, which you weren't making one. So can you give us an idea of what kind of life you were living at that time? Because I can imagine yeah, you'd, have to, you'd have to live quite frugally just to get by. So our, our full-time training did consist of training twice a day. And I believe it was 7 a.m. to 9 and then like 1 to 3. So I already kind of didn't have my car because I just couldn't afford the gas and the insurance. Because the gas and insurance in Vancouver is significantly higher than like other places in Canada. So I had a bike. So I would bike. I would wake up early and bike. It was pretty quick because it was downhill. So maybe half an hour to training 
I think it was around 15 kilometers away. So I would bike to training, get there at seven, train seven to nine. And then we'd had quite a bit of a break. So I would bike back up, but that would take an hour because it's all uphill. Great training, but get back home, you know, make a, a quick lunch and then take a quick nap and then wake up, bike back down, train again from one to three. And I would bike back up, get back home, shower, get ready. And then I had a part-time job working at a hot pot restaurant, like an all-you-can-eat hot pot restaurant that my friends owned. And then I would work that from five to like midnight. And then the owner of the hot pot restaurant, now my best friend, he would bring me out to eat dinner if we didn't eat dinner at the restaurant already. So I'd probably get home around 12.30 to 1 a.m. and then wake up again and do that all over again. Wow. So how many hours of sleep is that? Like five hours sleep? Yeah, five, five hours. But then I would get maybe like an hour, hopefully in like after my lunch in the afternoon. Mm-hmm. So how long were you doing that for? Because of course you had to, that was when you were in, you were at home, you were in Canada. And then the rest of the time that you were competing, obviously you were away. So yeah, how did that work? Uh, I, I honestly can't remember. Like for me now, that whole thing was such a blur because everything was just go, 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 go. But it, it was maybe a little bit less than a year. Honestly, can't remember. Um, like I was trying to recap, but I, I just can't remember how long I've been doing that for. Yeah. But I know it wasn't like throughout my whole career because like, I honestly would not have been able to sustain that. Like I could tell like when you don't have enough sleep, especially when you're training so much, there's no way that you can recover enough. So it was just something that like, I was glad that I was working as an electrician before that I was making a pretty high income before that it gave me enough credit limit on my credit cards to kind of really max it out when I was traveling. Yeah. So from there, how did it go for you? Like when you were away, then of course you didn't have any money coming in because you couldn't work. And then you were just using credit cards, like just out of curiosity, like, did you have multiple credit cards and was it something you've had to spend a lot of time to pay off afterwards? Uh, yeah. Like since starting like in 2010 to when I retired in 2016, I only finally got out of my badminton debt like February 2019, which is last year. Yeah, that's crazy. I mean, it, just thinking about the amount of credit card debt that one can rack up, especially when you're traveling around the world and playing tournaments and not having a, a salary coming in, it must have been an enormous sacrifice for yourself. Were there any other sacrifices that you'd had to make during that time period as well? Um, not so much that I could think of. Like Other than like there were times, like a long period of time where... I'm pretty much budgeting $2 a day on food. So like I'm, I'm eating rice, eggs with some canned beans and frozen mixed vegetables. And that is like pretty much all I ate. <laughs> Just trying to be as cheap as possible. But, you know, luckily, like this is only kind of the beginning of when I started to train and compete. Because at that time, like funding was very scarce in Canada. I was lucky enough to, in the later parts of my career, have that government funding, which is $1,500 a month, which isn't much, but... Yeah, but it just helps, right? Uh, but, but that helps like significantly. Yeah, yeah. So with the credit card debt that you were racking up, and of course, trying to qualify for things such as the Olympic Games and play all of the top international tournaments that you could play, did the burden or the thought of having all that credit card debt how did that weigh on you during your competitions? Like, did you have to pick and choose the competitions? You're, you couldn't fly here because it was too far away, even though that would have been ideal. Did it ever cross your mind when you're training or when you're playing that really got you down? No, not, not really. We never really like traveled anywhere that significant where I was like, oh, no, I can't afford that. It was pretty much like if I had a, any credit limit on my card, and it, it worked, or if I can book it, then I'm going to go. But like, it wasn't until uh, like 2011 when we started to do the qualification for the 2012 Olympics, where we had this long, I think it was like six weeks, where we went to Morocco for a tournament, and then we had a week off. So we went to Beijing because uh, Adrian had a connection 
there so we can stay for free and train. And then right after Beijing, we went to the Sudaman Cup. And then after Sudaman Cup, we had another week before the Maldives International Challenge. So we went to Singapore because we were lucky to have a connection there. And then after Singapore, we went to Maldives. And then after Maldives, it was a Singapore Open. And it was the Singapore, it was like right after Maldives going into Singapore Open where I did not have any more money to pay the minimum of my credit cards. Like I was like, man, like I was going to go into bankruptcy. Like I did not know what to do. And like, luckily I was able to get a funding in Canada called the Can Fund, which was like $6,000. And that kind of just put me just enough to pay off the minimums and to keep going. But then the problem with that was after I came back from Singapore. So this is like just the beginning of our qualification to Olympics. I had to stop training full time when I came back home. And when I came back home, I had to ask for my job back at the electrical company that I used to work for. Uh, I was very grateful that they hired me back. And then I started to work full time again during the Olympic qualification, just so I can have enough money to keep paying off like at least the minimum of my credit card so I can at least have enough just to book another ticket to compete again. So that was the hard part when I was trying to qualify for the 2012 Olympic. Yeah, I can't imagine how much stress you would have been under at that point in time. So I think qualifying for the Olympics itself, from my understanding, is, is hard enough. But having to manage all that credit card debt and only being able to service the minimums just by going back into your job would have been incredibly challenging for you. So Derek, how did you get out of that? I think it's really important for listeners out there who might also be in a similar position. They might be racking a bit of credit card debt, especially in times like this. How did you move from a position of paying minimums only to being able to thrive and where you are now? Um, the biggest thing for me is like know what you're good at. I was good at badminton. So what can I do to make money from what I'm good at would be coaching. So when I was back home, I was trying to coach as much as I can. The other thing is, you know, when you become this kind of uh, like when you're one of the best players and you start getting known in your community, it's not only good to give back, but it's also really beneficial for, at least for like for me was to network and to really reach out to people around the community. And like, again, like I was really thankful to kind of meet the people that hired me at the hot pot restaurant. And it was just kind of getting to know them. And I really believe like that is why, like one of those guys is now like my best friend. I just really kept in touch with him and I just kept picking his brain on, you know, like, what can I do to support myself? And of course, like him owning a business, he was like, you know, teaching me about passive income. So learning more about passive income, I was like, okay, I need to start a business somehow. And it just so happened to the other owner of the restaurant wanted to do a, or bring a badminton brand to Canada called Bonnie Sports. I think which are quite, or not quite big, but they, they are known in China so he kind of got me involved with that. But then I, I found like, again, it is like you guys are in badminton wear too. Like it is difficult to compete with the big brands like Yonex and Victor, where they're so established already. And especially like if you're trying to sell rackets, like how many rackets are people buying? And like, why would they buy yours instead of a Yonex racket? And if you buy a racket, it's probably not going to break for many years. So I wanted to get into something a little bit more generic. And... I started a kinesiology tape company called Skinetics. And through that, I had helped with, the, with my, my friend who wanted to partner with the badminton brand. And we pretty much shifted the badminton brand to do Skinetics instead. Because one, I had reached to the national teams in Canada, uh, just through like, my connections as a badminton player. And then from there, like, we, uh, I pretty much did everything from like, all the marketing and all the sales. And we started to sell the tape in like over a hundred retail stores across Canada. And it just kind of brought me enough passive income to keep paying my bills on time. So that, that was quite nice. Yeah, that, that's, that's awesome. And definitely a skill that you will take with you wherever you go, whatever your business you get into. So with the kinesiology tape, is that something that you're still doing now or, is, or not so much? Um, not so much. When we got into it, it was around, it was right 
before the, the 2012 Olympics. So even though I didn't qualify, I donated like a ton of tape to the Canadian team, which the doctors did say that they were using and they did send me a lot of pictures of them using it on the athletes. I just cannot say that I was the a sponsor or anything due to the whole Olympic guidelines. So like it was nice to give back and look and I did meet a lot of athletes. So like what I did with that was like knowing how hard it was for me financially, like it's going to be the same for the other athletes as well. So I really wanted to help back and be able to not only provide income for myself through the company, but to support any athlete who do want to advertise the product with their chiropractor or their physical therapist. So what I did there was like, if they can get their physical therapist to purchase tape for me, I will give them a referral fee. But not only that, like it wasn't just a one-time referral fee. Every time that they order, I will always give them a check every month. So, you know, that is kind of what I wanted to do to give back because like knowing how hard it is and being able to bounce back from it, I just want to make sure that other people who are going through that same goal as me, you know, trying to live that dream to have that little sense of hope. And, you know, even if I could just pay for their food for the month, like I was, it felt really good for me as well. Definitely. So you definitely grew a lot. It sounds like in that part of your life where finances and managing that and getting your passive income and then also just giving back and helping other athletes who are in similar positions as you. In terms of just if we kind of sum up the the financial side of things and the things that you've had to go through and things you've learned, did you have any take home or advice or messages to give someone who may be struggling in this area? Um, yeah, definitely. Just sometimes you just need to keep your head down and just keep working. As long as you really believe in yourself, you can really like anything is possible. Like you can work through it. I've seen a lot of talented players who's given up for a lot less. And seeing that is, is very heartbreaking. If you do want support, like you need to be actively searching for it. And you got to, like, you're the only one that could pick yourself up. So I can see where I started in badminton, where, you know, I was a good badminton player, but then I really worked hard to become great. So same thing with the financial. Like if you really want to achieve something, you, you got to work hard at it. Awesome. Awesome. So in terms of where you headed next, so unfortunately you didn't make it for the 2012 Olympics, correct? No, I did not qualify for 2012 or the 2016. Sure. So what was the transition of the period like between those two Olympic games? Um, so after the 2012, again, like because of the whole financial hardship, I did, I wanted to retire. I went back to school, but because I've been out of school for so long, going back was extremely difficult. And then at the same time, it was the Canada Open in my hometown in Richmond. And it was either continue school or just play for fun with my brother. And I decided to drop out of school to just play. So I ended up getting to the semifinals of the Canada Open, which I did not really expect. And my doubles partner who, like Adrian, who was still, he still wanted to compete he did ask like, if I wanted to just keep training a little bit. And then it was from there where I just said, you know what, like might as well just go for another four years. Yeah, I can see that despite everything, Derek, badminton always seems to pull you back. And just from hearing all the sacrifices that you've gone through just to play badminton, you must just really love the sport. And I want to give you this moment to, to share with the community about just what is it about badminton that you love so much? I think with badminton, like there's a whole on-court aspect of, you know, this is physical chess where you need to be, you need to think so many steps ahead and to kind of get into your opponent's head and just being able to perform. I think that was probably like the biggest thing for me, knowing what I am physically capable of and performing and kind of inspiring people that what the human body can do. Like for me, I was a very physical player. I do love to be extremely explosive. Even like when, you know, when you're hitting hard, but still having that technical touch is such a, like an art form to me. That is something that I really love about badminton. And the second thing would be the community. I really love the community around badminton. Like no one just goes 
and plays badminton and feels alone. There's a whole community behind it. I really love that sense of community where it's like most of my friends are, all of my friends are from badminton. And it's like pretty much it, it becomes your family. Yeah, I think Jeff and I couldn't agree more. And one of the reasons why we started the Badminton Podcast was to connect the Badminton community, especially from the varying levels that are out there, right? Professional, social, competitive levels. It's nice to be able to try and bridge that gap so we can all all sort of grow together. And it's great to hear our podcast guests come on and tell us how much they love the community, what other things that they love about the sport. And now we know, Derek, you've had a listen to some of our podcasts already. So we just wanted to just, I guess, take this moment to ask you, I mean, is there any particular episodes that you really enjoyed out of the Badminton Podcast so that podcast listeners that are listening to this episode can maybe go based off of what you liked and they can find an episode that's suitable for them? Um, well, like for me, the number one podcast episode that I really enjoyed listening to was with Tony Gunawan. But then I was a huge fan of Tony Gunawan before I even started to play badminton internationally. And just like hearing him talk and he's now that I've like, I've met him, he is such a nice guy. And what he said in like the very beginning of the podcast, you know, really makes me like fanboy him or idolize him is when you guys were like saying like, man, Tony, like, you know, you have won like Olympics and world championships with different partners. Because that is extremely difficult, but how humble he is when he said, "No, no, no it's just it just shows that I'm really good at finding partners." Partners, yeah, <laughs> yeah, like that. Just like man, like that is just that is so Tony. And watching him play, and for me, like why I became or why I really love to be the front court player was because of Tony. And for me, not only getting to meet him, to be able to be called his friend, but to be competing against him for the 2012 Olympics. Like, even though I did not qualify, I didn't qualify because I lost to Tony. And to me, it's like you're idolizing, let's say if you're idolizing like Michael Jordan, and then suddenly you get to compete against him. Like that is just like a whole nother level for me. And I'm just extremely happy that I was like, I'm able to be in the position that I am kind of with the idol that I grew up with. But then going back to your question, another podcast that I liked listening to was with Rude from the Netherlands. Because I have played him twice and lost to him twice. And he is a very good player. But you know how he talks about the Asian and Western training, it really does kind of... like I can kind of take that into consideration when I'm doing my own training or my own coaching now. And like we all know about like, Chinese training where it's very, there's a lot of volume, but for him to actually give us numbers, like they're doing 25 smashes instead of, you know, like 16 or 18 or 20, kind of having that, just having that like confirmation, like, well, you know, what we've all been thinking, but to hear someone actually say it, that has been involved in both Western and Asian style of training. It just kind of brought me like a sense of comfort, but then it, it was just more for for us, it's like we understand it's a numbers game in Asia and there's so much technical and tactical training in the Western training, but like really finding that mesh because like everyone training wherever they are in the world, it is going to be different. Like the scheduling is different and how much people are training is going to be different. The priorities of the kids are going to be different. Even like from city to city, like from coaching in Vancouver and coaching in Bellevue or Seattle in the US, you know, even if we're like we're two hours apart in driving distance, but the priorities of the kids' training is very different. And because the priorities are different, like how can I mix some Asian style training with some Western or European style training to make the best of these kids' time? That really interests me. And I really hope to find that perfect combination. So I can keep developing strong junior athletes in the U.S. Yeah, definitely. And when you think about all these things that do contribute to high performance or improvement, there's from from your end, as we understand, you've done a lot of different kind of experimentation as to what brings out the best in you. So, of course, some of it may be scientifically backed up, but of course, a lot of it is your personal opinion as well. So, we were speaking about this earlier when we were preparing for this podcast, and that was more 
there were many things we talked about that you were very experimental with. And one that I have done myself is about warm up regime. So I'd love to hear about that because that's often a question that I get asked as well. How do you prepare or warm up for a tournament, both physically and mentally? Like before the match, what do you do? Do you listen to music? Do you meditate? Do you relax or do you get more pumped up? Do you stay isolated compared to do you talk to your teammates because it makes you more relaxed? Like what worked for you? Um, like for me, I was pretty easy going. I pretty much kind of go with the mood. Like sometimes like I do like really hard and fast, high, you know, BPM music, where sometimes like I, I just like to listen to music, be calm and just be, you know, really relaxed before I get onto court. But then like most of the time, like as I was starting off my international career, it was usually just being very calm listening to music and then when it was time to play like I really like to go from like zero to a hundred but then knowing that like I am playing doubles where how I perform on court is also dependent on how my partner performs on court or how we do in a match it's dependent on both of us I really needed to be a little bit more in tune with my partner because like I, I do know that like Adrian likes to really get warmed up get pumped up he needs to be playing fast rallies like in the warm-up before we even get onto court so even though like for me like my fitness was also one of the issues that i always had an, uh, a problem with like i didn't want to be too aggressive before the match in the warm-up or i'm just gonna gas out and burn out when i'm playing so it was something that i had to work on so like i really did work hard on my fitness and i decided to just try doing the same warm-up regime as my partner so it doesn't matter like if i play well and he doesn't play well then like we're not going to play well together if he plays well i don't play well then that like so we always have to be like i have to be open-minded to seeing what works for him and just really working together because again like a partnership you have to work together so with the warm-up regime it was just you know getting that dynamic stretch in doing your the band works for my joint so I don't get injured and then getting into like some light hitting and then to getting to more aggressive hitting where like playing box game and trying to pretty much kill each other right before the match. And that kind of got us in the right mindset and physically ready for our match. Yeah, it's really a testament to your open-mindedness and your ability to experiment and engage with your doubles partner, Adrian. And I guess develop a working relationship that benefits the doubles pairing as a whole, Derek. Now, for others, say doubles players that might be listening to the podcast and they might have their own differences with their own doubles partners at the moment. I guess for you, it's a very natural thing for you to experiment and be open-minded to how Adrian and to how he prepares for his matches. But what if we have two doubles players that aren't really seeing eye to eye in their preparations for a doubles match, what kind of advice would you give to them? Yeah, well, you pretty much just have to figure out like, okay, if I do this and he does that, like how well are we really going to be playing? Because again, the results do matter, especially when if you are playing competitively, results do matter. If it means doing more work for a better result, just do it. If you need to suck it up and do something that you might not like but you know is going to make you give you a better result there really shouldn't be any excuses not to do it yeah and that's just being considerate as well so of course i think derek you were saying that if you alter your warm-up regime a little bit differently then it doesn't really affect you that much but if adrian's got messed up then it did affect him quite a lot so you were able to say okay i'll make this sacrifice you if you want to call it that word but and just saying okay it doesn't really affect me so let's adapt to him because of course as a doubles combination it's really important that both of you play well otherwise the results not going to be good and if i kind of relate it back to a single so if you're a singles player out there and you're listening and you don't have to appease anyone or think about anyone else's performance other than your own my advice as derek's advice is is just to really be open-minded about it and really experiment with different things so if there's a tournament coming up in the first round, second round, third round, then try different things. So I had actually a, a trial period at Suderman Cup in 2007. I think it was in Glasgow. 
where we would play a singles match every single day against a different country. And then I remember trialing, okay, some EDM music or some really rapid, fast music from as soon as I got to the hall and just playing that, pumping myself up while I was doing my warm up. And I compared that to say a more relaxing, so like more chilled out music or just to get you kind of more relaxed. And what I found was that the relaxed music actually made me a lot more nervous. So when I stepped on the court, I felt like my body couldn't move properly because I just felt too relaxed and yeah, just stuck. Whereas with the EDM, then I found that I was ready. I was the right amount of kind of pumped up that I needed to be and my muscles were moving and my body was moving a lot better than with the other way. And then you can experiment with different things such as being alone or being with your teammates. So for me personally, it was very much about being alone. Like no one except the coach would basically speak to me before the match for like a good hour before the match because I just wanted to be in my own headspace. And maybe for the people out there listening to to challenge yourself and, and do that. And then on the next day or a different competition, then just talk to friends and see whether that helps because everyone warms up in a different way. Derek, do you have anything to add to that in terms of what other things you could experiment to make your warm-up regime the most effective for any individual? I think it was just a preference that I wanted to be relaxed and calm before my match and you know not do anything too uh, rigorous. But then I do understand like majority of athletes are not going to be like that. Like they need that, that pump up and, you know, really getting those muscles firing. But then for me, I didn't find much of a difference when I did that warm up or when I did like a more of aggressive warm up. But then I could say maybe like if I did an aggressive warm up, like I was just a little bit better. But then it's like, okay, am I really going to put in all that effort just to get a little bit better? And then the answer is like, yes, like, why not? Like, you have to work your butt off just to get a little bit better. Like, why not? Again, like going back on my fitness was a problem for me, where it's like, okay, I need to put in more effort just to, like, I needed to train just so I could warm up properly. (laughs) Yeah, like then, then it was like, okay, it was like that self-talk where, okay, Derek, something was wrong then. So sometimes we get caught in our own laziness. And we just need to remember that if you want to be the best, you got to do what, you know, most people aren't doing. Yeah, it's really obvious, Derek, that you have that experimental mindset and that constant focus on growth and achieving goals that it seems like a a lot of people, a a lot of badminton players that are in the Western society sort of decide to give up, unfortunately, because they feel that they don't have what it takes a lot of the times or they just can't compete with those badminton-dominant countries. So having a listen to what you've achieved despite all the massive struggles that you had to go through, most specifically financially, what do you have to say to badminton players who are thinking twice about going 100%, 110% into badminton, especially when the odds are stacked up against them and they do have those big stresses like you did? So one one thing that I do notice a lot when people are kind of making this decision is like they're just kind of out of high school and they have that belief where if like it's either badminton or school and get a job and, and so on. Whereas for me, technically, I was working four or five years as an electrician before I started competing. So if I just went the traditional route instead of going through trade school and stuff like that, if I just went to like university, college, technically, I would have been able to go through school and graduate and then start my badminton career. I really think that a lot of people are always thinking it's one or the other. Why can't you have both? You can still do your school. And by the time you finish, let's say if you do finish your school in four years, if you finish high school and you know at 17, like you're coming out at 21. And it's not like you're gonna stop playing badminton just to go to college full time. I'm sure like there's still clubs and there's still opportunities to train and just to be involved in the sport. So I really don't understand where people have that concept of it's either one or the other. You can always go to school, finish school and keep playing badminton, keep training, keep your fitness up. And then after you finish, then you can make that decision. Do you want to play badminton or do you want to get a job? 
you really don't need to kind of make that decision like right out of high school. Yeah, definitely. It is a huge, huge decision to make. And quite often after high school, there's not really a clear path anyway. There might be some people out there who know exactly what they want to do. And I'd probably say that I was one of them. I wanted to do dentistry. I was a hundred percent sure, but then now I'm doing this and I'm not doing dentistry full time at the moment. So things are always changing regardless of what potentially you think you really want to do. So I think just keeping those opportunities open is just really important for everyone, especially as we keep moving into this, I guess, modern or millennial lifestyle where I think they did studies and they were showing how, how many different career pathways someone has in their lifetime now compared to say a hundred years ago is crazy. So the amount of times people switch industries, switch jobs and do things different is, is really common now. So having that additional option of playing badminton is a great option because it's definitely something that you'll take with you for the rest of your life. Yeah. And then like for you, Jeff, you've played internationally. That's how I met you from competing internationally. And like, I'm not sure how many of your listeners know, but you are also a dentist. Yeah. So I ended up, I had the same dilemma. So when I finished high school, I wanted both and everyone was telling me that I couldn't have both. It was either you do dentistry or you do badminton and that's it. And then I kind of said, no, well, why can't I do both? So I took up three years off university and got special consideration, luckily. And so I competed and trained for three years full-time. And then I decided that I would start my university degree after those three years, which was after the Beijing Olympics 2008. And then during university, then I was able to keep up with my training. And then I got to play the Commonwealth Games two Commonwealth Games, which one that was when I got to know you a lot better in 2014 in Glasgow. So yeah, I'd say you might look at this and say, okay, we're from countries that maybe don't produce the highest badminton players or the best badminton players in the world. But that just doesn't go to say that you can't do it. You can still do it. You just need to be open-minded enough to take the challenges on because everyone's in a different situation. And yeah, I'm really happy that I made that choice. So yeah. Now, I also want to touch on another thing that we spoke about previously that has enabled you to help with your performance. And it's probably a much more mainstream topic now just because of the benefits of it. But if you probably talk to someone about meditation, which is what we're going to talk about next, if we talked about meditation maybe 20 years ago, it might have been perceived as a little bit airy-fairy. But in terms of your meditation and what you did for that, how did that help you and what did you do? So the reason why I did more meditation for my own training was because I really believed it's like mind over matter. Like everything that you control with your body, it all starts in your head, especially with focusing during training and when you're on court, when you have so many thoughts going through your head, just from like, for me, like all the financial stress and, you know, other stresses with like relationship and stuff like that going through while being away, being able to put that aside in your head and to really focus on what I need to focus on. Meditation has helped me a lot with that. I'm really big into the brain space, even with nootropics and supplementations to help with my focus. So just having that ability, because especially like at the uh, the high level where a lot of the players are have pretty much physically the same skill wise. It's pretty much the same when they say, you know, the game is like 80% mental, 20% physical. Like I really do believe that. So having that mind space going into a game, being confident, being able to block out unwanted thoughts, meditation has really helped me with that. Yeah, that's really cool. And I guess it is just the common analogy of you never question the need for physical training, right? You need to go to the gym, you need to be on court, you need to do your footwork, you need to do your conditioning work. But then when it comes to mental stuff like your focus, which meditation by definition is just continual focus on a certain thing without your mind going away to a different topic, right? So just being able to keep that focus and using meditation as a tool that is transferable to the court and training as well is just a really big thing I think that is coming more and more common in high performance, whether it's it's in sports, but it could be for performance for say 
acting or stage performing, et cetera. I think it's a really big part of that now. So Derek, we really appreciate everything you've had to say today. We've learned a lot from your story and just the resiliency you've been able to build. Now, for someone who is looking to maybe have a chat to you or ask you any questions, or if they're looking to see how they can actually train with you if they're in the Bellevue area, um, how can they get in contact with you? Uh, you can contact me through my email, which is Derek at BellevueBadminton.com or just through my personal Instagram page, Derek Ng21. Great. So we'll put that in the description below. So make sure to get in touch with Derek so you can follow him along his coaching journey and just hit him up for any questions that you might have. So from Jeff and I at Volantware and the Badminton Podcast, thanks so much for coming onto the podcast, Derek. Thank you for having me. So guys, thanks for tuning in. We had a lot of fun with Derek in this episode and I hope you've learned a lot. Hopefully we can bring Derek back on again in the future and hopefully discuss some of his nutritional experimentations that we didn't quite get into in this particular episode. But if Derek would like to join us on another episode in the future, we'd definitely like to explore that with him as well. And I'm sure our listeners will too. So if you've enjoyed this episode or any of our other episodes, or if you just love badminton like we do, please share this podcast with all your family and friends and even people that aren't your friends that you think might like this podcast. Okay, guys. Anyway, so get out there, train hard, play hard, have fun and share your love of the sport so that we can show the world how incredible badminton is. And if you want to get in contact with Jeff or myself, us at Volantware and the Badminton Podcast. You can follow us on Instagram, Facebook, YouTube, and on our website, volantware.com. Make sure you reach out to us with any questions or request any topics for episodes because we're here to serve you, the Badminton community, and we're always looking to do better. So please send us your messages, your feedback, whether it's positive or negative, and we will continue to bring you awesome episodes. So we'll see you on the next one, guys. Thanks. Bye. Thanks, guys. Thanks, Derek. Thank you. Bye-bye. This podcast was brought to you by Volantware, the most versatile badminton apparel you'll ever own.